4, 1 through 22, and this passage can be found in 758 of the Bible that is on your row if you want to take a look at it. Acts 4, 1 through 22, which can be found on page 758 of the Bible in front of you. We've been looking through the book of Acts, and uh, two weeks ago we saw that Peter and John healed a paralytic beggar, and, uh, which was a miraculous event, and then they gave a speech about it, and now they've been arrested. Uh, the Sanhedrin has arrested them, and they've brought them in to give an explanation of what's going on here. So we're going to be taking a look at Peter and John's response. So let me read out for us Acts 4, 1 through 22. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple man and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and everyone else in Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you completely healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing more they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone in living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's side to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. The word of the Lord. Well, there was a great athletic feat accomplished this week. I don't know if you saw it or not, but Rafael Nadal won his, uh, the U.S. Open on Monday in New York in Flushing Meadow, uh, completing what's called a career Grand Slam. He's one of a very few people that has ever done this to win all four major titles, such as Wimbledon, the French Open, and the Australian Open. And what was amazing was how he did it in such a convincing way. Um, his game has improved so much. His serve is actually 12 miles an hour faster than it was a year ago. His volley's better. His entire game is better. And he basically mowed down the opposition. Um, he was like Superman out there. In fact, the media has 
taken a new name to call him because he's a big guy, he's got these big muscles. They've started calling him Superman because he's apparently invincible on the tennis court. And I have to confess to you that I have a little envy. I have a little Rafael Nadal envy because I'm a tennis player too. And I wish that I could play like Rafael Nadal. I actually even play with Rafael Nadal's tennis racket. This is the same racket that he plays with. And I have a Spanish name too. Yet I convince that I am far from the skill of Rafael Nadal, though I wish I were like him. I wish I could do something like Nadal, to, to be supernatural, superhuman, if you will, in my abilities and accomplishments. I heard a recent uh, uh, story about uh, New York University and a college application that was submitted to New York University. Uh, they asked a question in their uh, college application, which was essentially this. In order for the admission staff of our college to get to know you, the applicant better, we ask that you answer the following question. Are there any significant experiences you have or accomplishments you have realized that have helped to define you as a, per as a person? And this was the response of Hugh Gallagher, a high school senior seeking admittance into New York University. I am a dynamic figure often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I have been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I translate ethnic slurs for Cuban refugees. I write award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. Occasionally, I tread water for three days in a row. I woo women with my sensuous and godlike trombone playing. I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed, and I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. I'm an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. Using only a hoe and a large glass of water, I once single-handedly defended a small village in the Amazon basin from a horde of ferocious army ants. I play bluegrass cello. I was scouted by the Mets. I am the subject of numerous documentaries. When I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my yard. I enjoy urban hang gliding. On Wednesdays after school, I repair electrical alliances free of charge. I am an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. I'm a private citizen, yet I receive fan mail. I've been caller number nine and have won the weekend passes. Last summer, I toured New Jersey with a traveling centrifugal force demonstration. I bat 400. My deft floral arrangements have earned me fame in international botany circles. Children trust me. I can hurl tennis rackets at small moving objects with deadly accuracy. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish an entire dining room that evening. I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket. I have performed several covert operations with the CIA. I sleep once a week. When I do sleep, I sleep in a chair. While on vacation in Canada, I successfully negotiated with a group of terrorists who had seized a small bakery. The laws of physics do not apply to me. I balance, I weave, weave I dodge, I frolic, and my bills are all paid. On weekends, to let off steam, I participate in full-contact origami. Years ago, I discovered the meaning of life but forgot to write it down. I have made extraordinary four-course meals using only a muli and a toaster oven. I breed prize-winning clams. I have won bullfights in San Juan, 
cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I have played Hamlet, I have performed open-heart surgery, and I have spoken with Elvis, but I have not yet gone to college. Sincerely, Hugh Gallagher. Hugh Gallagher is now a student at New York University. I love this essay by Hugh Gallagher, telling of all of his accomplishments. And as humorous and funny it is, there's one problem with it. It's all false. He's done none of those things. But wouldn't it be great to be able to do the impossible? Wouldn't it be great to have supernatural strength and supernatural abilities to do the things that defied logic? I think that's why we're so unnerved by these passages that I read right here. When we see Peter and John healing people, healing the paralyzed, preaching the gospel and thousands coming to faith, even being able to stand up in front of the entire nation of Israel against them and to be fearless when asked to not preach, to have supernatural strength. And as I look at Peter and John and I look at my life, I'm unnerved and I ask the question, could I do the same things? Could I stand when that sort of pressure was on me? And I compare, and often what we do is we say, there's, there's something wrong with us. There's a lack of power in our life, supernatural power. Where is this power that's in the Scriptures? Why don't I evidence it more in my life? Well, that's what I want to look at today. How do we live a supernatural life? You know, the key to living a supernatural life is having it lived by a supernatural person. And it is only as we choose this supernatural person to have reign in our lives that we will have a supernatural life too. We're going to look at three things concerning the supernatural life, the supernatural power. Number one, what is it? What is this supernatural power that they're talking about? Number two, for what purpose is it given? And so number one, what is this power? Second, what is it, uh, for what purpose is it given? And finally, point number three, what are the limits of this power that we see in the Scriptures? Well, let's take a look at question number one. What is this power? That is the question of the Sadducees and the officials right here as they call Peter and John before them. They've arrested them and they've brought them into a tribunal and they ask them the question, by what power or what name did you do this? Translated in the Greek, by what sort of power or name granted you the authority to be able to do what you have just done? This is Peter's response in verse 9. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And so we see the first important truth, that this power is a person. It's not an impersonal force. It's not a special technique. It's not a special method or hidden knowledge that they have. This power is a person. And furthermore, it's a living person. In verse 10, this is the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. See, Peter and John are saying, don't look at me. Look at this one Jesus who is living in me, the living Jesus. He is the one that has accomplished this, not us ordinary men, Peter and John. Well, the Sadducees look at these two men and they simply can't believe it. It doesn't fit within their framework. And the reason that the Sadducees can't believe it is because of two things. The first is their understanding of power is based on position. The Sadducees were the spiritual leaders of Israel. And as such, they were in charge of the temple, 
The high priest came from the ruling class of the Sadducees. The captain of the guard, second in command, was also from the Sadducees. They were the ones in charge. And so they ruled over Israel. They told Israel what to do and what to believe. And in order to keep power, they constantly had to compromise. They had to negotiate with the Romans who were over them and to accept compromises in order to stay in power. And so this is why we see they're so angry and upset when Peter and John start preach, uh, preaching and teaching in verse 2 because they're preaching without authorization. They just go and they start talking about this Jesus. Who gave them the authority to do this? Because the Sadducees' understanding of power is based on position. And here they are looking at Peter and John, untrained, unschooled, never gone to the rabbinical schools, and they just can't get it. But the second reason they can't get their hold, their, their arms around this power, is because their notion of power is based on philosophy. See, they were students of the Word, and they had come to the conclusion with all of their great learning that there was no resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees believed that when your life was over, when your body died, your soul died with it. So no pass go, no collect $200, life is over. So amidst all of their study and their great erudition, they had failed to recognize that the point of the entire scriptures was God's plan to resurrect humanity, to raise people from the dead by freeing them from the curse that God had put in them because of original sin. And so that when God's power was manifested in this person being healed, in Peter and John explaining the name of Jesus Christ, the resurrected one, they stuck their hand up. They refused to recognize because their power was based on their philosophy. It was based on their theology. So Peter and John sum up the difference in verse 11. He is the stone that you have rejected who has become the chief cornerstone. Now, I don't know if we have any contractors in our midst here, but the chief cornerstone is the most important stone that's laid when you build a house. Because when you build a house, you lay a foundation. And to start, you've got to start somewhere. You take one of the corners of that foundation and you lay a stone. And you lay it exactly the way it's supposed to go because everything will follow from that stone. If that stone is positioned right, the house will be positioned right. If it's level, the house will be leveled as well, uh, level as well. And so Peter and John is saying, all of power, all of life derives itself from this one, Jesus Christ. And yet you have failed to recognize that this power is in a person. Last week when I uh, finished up preaching, we went out to lunch, my wife and I, with some friends, and I came back and I went to start my car, and my car was dead, dead as a doornail. I thought to myself, oh no, what's the problem? So we jumped my car and we took it uh, over to Advanced Auto Parts, uh, took it to the experts to try to figure out what was wrong with it. And so the woman wheeled out the uh, diagnostic card and she hooked up the things to the batteries and she said, oh, here's the problem, your battery is dead. That's the reason your car won't start. You're going to have to get a new battery because it's the battery that provides the life to the car. Now, being the cheapskate that I was, I immediately started to think what would be some different alternatives to maybe getting a battery because I didn't want to spend the money. So I asked, can I just hop over to the Kmart here and grab some AA batteries, which are much cheaper, and just stick them there and hook up the cables? Would that be sufficient power to start my car? This woman looked at me quizzically, of course, and said, no, it has to be a battery. Well, I'm an intelligent person. I think great thoughts. I've studied theology and languages. What if we did this? 
What if we took those cables and we routed them into the car and right before I was going to start the car, I connected them to my mind and thought great and powerful thoughts. Could I then start the car? This woman was now beginning to get a bit exasperated. No, you couldn't start the car with great thoughts. You need a battery in order to give life to this car. Well, now I thought to myself, gosh, it's because it's a Toyota. I mean, if I had a Mercedes or a Jaguar or a Rolls Royce or something, I wouldn't be having this problem. What if I went and I ripped the, ripped the insignia of a Mercedes off and I went and I stuck it on my car? Would then it go ahead and start up? Now, the woman, you know, she's about to throw the battery at me. Of course not. You need a battery in order to provide life to this car. You see, folks, it's the same thing for us, isn't it? We are in desperate need of power. But the power that we need lies not in our position. It lies not in our philosophy. It lies not in anything else. It lies only in one thing, and that thing is a person. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Where do you derive your power? Maybe your power is in your practices. You're a good person. You do the right things. You read the Bible during the week sometimes. Maybe pray a little bit here or there. You're a good person. You think good thoughts. You should have enough power to be able to handle life's uh, challenges that come before you. And yet there's so little power in your life. You're like a two-cylinder car going along that has eight cylinders, not able to tap into that immeasurable power that we're reading about in these scriptures. The truth of the matter is power is a person. The only way to have a supernatural life is to have it lived by a supernatural person. And it is only as we choose this supernatural person to have reign in our life that we will have supernatural person uh, power too. And so we must become spiritual mechanics in our own life. Day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, looking under the hood to see where our heart is connected to. Proverbs 4.23 puts it best, guard your heart, for out of it come the wellsprings of life. See, we're not responsible for the power. That's Christ. But we are responsible for positioning our life in such a way as to receive God's power. In fact, that's a measure of spiritual maturity, taking responsibility for my own heart, putting myself in a position where I'm gaining my power from Christ as opposed to the other things out there that seek, uh, seek my heart instead. And God has not left us bereft of tools. He's given us several key diagnostic tools, God's Word for one and prayer. As we go to God's Word day by day, meditating on it, just like in Psalm 1, meditated on it day and night, day and night. God's Word, His instruction manual, is opening up to us and laying bare to us our heart. For the Scriptures tell us that it reveals to us the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. Reveals to us where we have taken these cables off of the person of Jesus Christ and attached them somewhere else. And God also gives us prayer, a relationship with Christ who lives within us that as we speak to him, he's able to coach us and mentor us and show us the hidden agreements in our life, the places that we've gone where we've taken the cables of our heart and attached them to somewhere else. And one other key diagnostic tool that he has given us is community. You know, we have blind spots in our life. As much as we claim to be able to open the hood and see and look what's going on in our heart, it's so critical to have other people in our life that we allow into our life to look under the hood as well, 
to show us where we have erred and where we've strayed. One neat thing that we have started recently are, are uh, we've started two journey groups. You're going to hear more and more about journey groups as the year goes on and as this church life grows on. But journey groups are small groups of people. One mentor or coach, a discipler with five or six other people who are interested in growing in their faith, coming together, opening the hoods of their lives and allowing people to look in to help make sure that we're strengthening our ties to this one Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we're going to want to have everybody to go through a journey group. But we're also going to want community groups to start sprouting up where we get together. You don't have to wait for a journey group. I challenge you, who are you letting into your life where you're coming alongside of and saying, look into my life and let me look into yours. And together we can strengthen one another to grow into this person, Jesus Christ. Because this power is a person. There are no supernatural people, only a supernatural Christ. Well, now I want to talk about for what reason is this power given? If the power is a person, what reason is this power given? Well, this power is given for a purpose, namely to proclaim the preeminence of the person of Christ. It's kind of a tongue twister there. This power is given for a purpose, namely to proclaim the preeminence of the person of Christ. See, when we proclaim his person, that is when we receive his power. And this passage right here shows us exactly what Peter and John are doing proclaiming the preeminence of Christ. Why were they arrested? Look at verse 2. They were arrested because they were proclaiming in Christ the resurrection of the dead. These thousands of people are coming, and they're proclaiming in Christ the resurrection of the dead. See, they were capitalizing on the situation that was occurring right here around them. They didn't plan to heal the beggar. If you look back, they were simply going to the temple for prayer. But it was God's will that this beggar would be healed and they were responsive to the Holy Spirit. And as they healed this beggar, through the power of the Holy Spirit, people came and they saw an opportunity to proclaim the preeminence of Christ. I wonder if it was tempting for them that they had done this miracle. Nobody knew how they had done it. This crowd was coming. Couldn't they have just simply said, look at us. Look at the great things that we have done much like the Sadducees, capitalizing on this opportunity. But no, they didn't do that. They proclaimed Christ. Now notice, I want you to contrast the behavior of Peter and John with that of the Sadducees, who are doing all they can to suppress the preeminence of the person of Christ. When Christ is being preached, they arrest the disciples. They remove them from the public sphere. They interrogate them. They threaten them. They order them, stop talking about this name of this person, Jesus Christ. And yet we see, because they are thrusting down the name of Jesus Christ, they have no power. Where Peter and John, who are proclaiming the name of Christ, are receiving this power. We see in verse, we see Peter and John repeatedly attesting to the preeminence of Christ. Look at verse 10. It is by the name of Jesus this man is completely healed. Not us. He is the stone you builders have rejected. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. The Sadducees are astonished because they don't expect them to behave like this. When they saw the courage of these men, verse 13, and realized they were ordinary people, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Why does the power come when we proclaim Christ's preeminence? Why does it come to us? 
The reason it comes is because the goal of God the Father is to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. It was Jesus that came into the world at the Father's behest in response to the Father's plan. Jesus came in obedience to rescue humanity from sin. He lived an obedient life. He was faithful to God's plan from beginning to end. And so the Father has given him the name that is above all names. He is so proud of the Son that he wants the Son to be exalted in all spheres of the earth. And so that is what life is all about. The only reason God hasn't turned out the lights to this world and started a new one is because he is about making the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, preeminent over all things. The world is not about us, my friends. The world is about him. One day, all of creation, at the end of all things, will bow before him. Philippians 2.9 puts it this way, Therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, at the end of the day, all of us will bow and acknowledge who Jesus Christ is either with everlasting joy or with everlasting shame. But in the meantime, God sends his power to those who are about his purpose. Now, I want to make a quick caveat here because as we look at these apostles, we're tempted to ask this question. Well, if I'm proclaiming Christ, if I'm about his business, shouldn't my life look like the apostles? Shouldn't I be able to do miracles and these unbelievable things as well? The answer is no, because we proclaim his preeminence according to his plan, not ours. We don't take his power and we're able to do whatever we want. Rather, it is according to his plan. And we see in scriptures that the apostles hold a special place in the church that was not held by anyone else. Ephesians 3.20 tells us that the apostles were the foundation of the church. And as we all know, you only lay a foundation once. They were entrusted with the secret things of the kingdom. There was no Bible back at the time. They were the Bible. The Bible sprung out of their teachings, the teachings that they had been entrusted with Christ. And so we see in Colossians 2.12 that there were certain things that marked an apostle, namely signs, wonders, and miracles. They were given special power to attest to their place as the foundational stones of the kingdom, much like Christ was given power. But the power was given to illustrate on the outside what was going on on the inside, the transformation of the human heart. With the passing of the apostles and the writing downs of their teachings in Scripture, these miracles generally died away. Does that mean that Christ does not do miracles now? No, absolutely he does miracles. But certainly not in the same character as he was doing them through the apostles. The New Testament letters, as we look at them, focus more and more, the later ones, on the ethical teachings of the gospel. How do we follow Christ? How do we love our neighbor? Not on the supernatural phenomenon of the kingdom. And so the apostolic age was a special era in Christianity for a special history, a special purpose. But the vast majority of history is normal as God goes about his business transforming the human heart through people by faith. And so we don't need to wish that we had power like the apostles. What we need to wish is, God, give us power for the position that I'm in right now according to your plan. Dwight was born to a large poor family in 1837. When his father was 41, he died from alcoholism, and Dwight was sent to a workhouse to pay for his room and board. 
When he was 17, Dwight was sent to Boston to work in his uncle's shoe store. One of his uncle's requirements was that he attend church. Church seemed boring, but a faithful Sunday school teacher encouraged him along. And one Saturday, April 21st, 1855, this teacher, Edward Kimball, walked into the store and found Dwight wrapping shoes. He said, I want to tell you how much Christ loves you. Dwight knelt down and was converted. Later he told how he felt. I was in a new world. The birds sang sweeter. The sun shone brighter. I'd never known such peace. However, his first application for church membership in May 1855 was rejected. He was not received as a church member until May 4, 1856. As his teacher, Mr. Edward Kimball stated, I can truly say, and in saying it, I magnify the infinite grace of God has bestowed upon him, that I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than Dwight L. Moody when he came into my Sunday school class. And I think that the committee of Mount Vernon Church seldom met an applicant for membership more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided view of the gospel, truth still less to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness. But Moody felt God's hand on him, prompting him to proclaim the gospel. He quit his secular job and started holding Sunday school classes for children in an old abandoned boxcar where he was initially called Crazy Moody. But Moody was challenged by the words of evangelist Henry Varley. This world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully consecrated to him. Moody remarked, by God's grace, I will try my utmost to be that man. With renewed vigor, Moody traveled the world preaching the gospel to anyone who would listen, preaching innumerable crusades and services. When on his deathbed, he is reported to have said, I see earth receding, heaven is approaching, God is calling me, this is my triumph, this is my coronation day, it is glorious, God is calling and I must go. In addition to leaving behind such venerable institutions as the Moody Bible Institute, D.L. Moody is estimated as having led one million people to Christ. Was Moody more talented? Was he more gifted? Was he more special than any one of us sitting in the chairs right now? No, he was an illiterate shoe salesman from Boston. But God used Moody, and Moody wanted to be used. Is the next Moody sitting here among me? Maybe, but probably not. God calls us to live our ordinary lives with supernatural power where he has placed us, in our jobs, in our situations. What is your purpose, friends? We all want power, but for what purpose? What do we want to proclaim? You may say to myself, well, I don't have any opportunities to proclaim Christ where I am. I'm, I'm a homemaker. I'm with children all day. My life is very isolated, caring for my children. I don't have time to go out and to preach like Moody or anything like that. I want to let you know that God has put you exactly in the place where you are supposed to be, to proclaim the preeminence of Christ where he has put you. And God puts all of us in a position of influence. As you rub up against other mothers, if you're a stay-at-home mom or fathers, if you're a stay-at-home father, God gives you the power to influence them and to proclaim and make much of Christ. As you go and interact with people at the school, you know, I love my wife, Lee Ellen. Lee Ellen is watching over our kids, but she understands the place where God has put her. And her goal is to make much of Christ in all of those different places. It was very interesting. Some time ago, one of the teachers came to my wife, who Leon had never even spoken of, uh, about Jesus Christ. And she said, could you pray for me? And my wife was just floored. 
and had the opportunity to pray for her. How did this woman know? Because she had been watching my wife's life. People are watching us, looking for answers. And God gives us the power to proclaim the preeminence of Christ wherever we are. We have more than enough power. There are no supernatural people. There's only a supernatural Christ. And as we seek to derive our life from Him, not from ourselves, He will give us a supernatural life too. Well, you may be saying to me, well, I'm too nervous. I'm too scared. I, I can't take that step out into that realm like Peter and John. I don't need to you know, go in front of those people, just even my peers. You don't know the crowd that I swim in. I, I'm afraid that I'll cave and I won't be able to stand. But you see, the power is a person. The power is for his purpose. And this is the third point that I want to make. God gives us the power to persist and to persevere. I appreciate this passage because we see the perseverance of Peter and John. I mean, think about this pressure that these guys were under. They've come before this tribunal. You think about going before the Senate and the House of Representatives and the President, the entire spiritual power. Isn't it ironic that this was the same group that had gathered several months before to bring Jesus in front of him, to condemn him to crucifixion? They were very aware of that. And yet they managed to stand their ground. How? Verse 8 tells us, Then Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, spoke to them. These guys were ordinary guys, but Christ's Spirit, who was living in them, gave them the courage to defy a nation, to be fearless in Christ. Left to ourselves, will we cave? Absolutely. We don't have what it takes. People ask me all the time, how... Why is the Christian life so difficult? I tell people, Christian life isn't difficult. Christian life's impossible. You can't live the Christian life. There's only one who can live the Christian life, and that's Jesus Christ. Left to ourselves, it is impossible. We will cave. But the story of our life is all about Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who gave us new life. If you're a Christian, Jesus is the one who gave us new life in the first place. You know, I illustrate it so simple. It's as simple as getting a new battery in your life. But it wasn't that simple, was it? You see, our hearts were spiritually dead. And for Jesus Christ to jumpstart our heart, he had to let his stop. In order for our heart to start beating, Christ had to let his stop. He had to give up his life that we might have life. He's big enough to give us his life. It's Christ who gives us his purpose. Will we be faithful to the purposes of God? No, we won't. We'll stray. We'll go. We'll do it all the time. But Jesus was faithful to the purposes of God. He was the one from beginning to end who never flinched all the way to the cross. And he has the power to give us a life filled with his purpose as well. Will we persevere? We'll run. But Jesus Christ persevered. And because he persevered, and he is in us, and we are in him, we will persevere through him only by his grace. There are no supernatural people, only a supernatural Christ. And as we seek our life from Him, we will have a supernatural life. Finish with one final story. It was during this reign of Nero in AD 60 that the Apostle Paul and Peter were put to death. Later, under another emperor by the name of Marcus Aurelius, many believers were thrown to the wild beasts in the amphitheater as thousands of people watched. How did the Christians deal with this persecution? Did they band together to form an army so they could fight against the Romans? No. The early Christians met cruelty with courage 
and they met hatred with heroism, and they met fierceness with faith. One example of such courage and bravery is seen in the life of Polycarp, a man who lived in 2nd century A.D. He was arrested and brought into the great amphitheater in Smyrna, which is in modern-day Turkey. Thousands of people were there to watch what would take place. The ruler reminded Polycarp of his great age of 86 and urged him to deny his Christian faith. Revile Christ, and I will release you. But Polycarp answered, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme him, my king, who has saved me? I am a Christian. The ruler then cried out to the crowd, Polycarp has confessed him to be a Christian. And the crowds yelled, Let him be burned. Wood was collected and made into a pile, and Polycarp asked not to be fastened to the stake. Leave me thus, he said. He who strengthens me to endure the flames will also enable me to stand firm at the stake without being fastened. And as the woodpile was lighted, Polycarp bravely lifted up a final prayer to his God, and finally the flames consumed him. He died in 156 A.D. Was Polycarp special? He was just an ordinary guy like you and me. But he was submitted to the supernatural Christ who met him in his time of needs. We must follow in his path of proclaiming Christ. Will we be arrested? Will we be burned at the stake? Probably not in America, at least not now anyways, though many people around the world are. But we may be misunderstood. We may be marginalized. We may be misrepresented. I really don't know what will happen to you if you seek to proclaim Christ, but I know Christ will give you power and he will give you perseverance as you seek to lift him up. So we, I conclude with these thoughts. <clears throat> we can experience the supernatural life because we are tied to a supernatural Savior. Recognize our power is not in our position. It's not in our philosophy or our theology. Our power is in Jesus. Commit yourself to his purpose. Step out in faith. Look to him for the strength to persevere. And you too will experience the supernatural life that he gave to Peter and John.